The thought of studying for a PhD can seem like a daunting prospect to most of us, and we may assume that someone studying for one is particularly clever or academically minded. You might have questions about how they fit into university life. Are they considered a student or a professional? What do they actually do all day? What do you study for a PhD? And what happens next if you do study for one? We have invited Danielle and Serena to talk to us today about their experiences and help us to dispel some of the myths. Both my guests are studying for a social sciences PhD here at the University of Portsmouth and are due to complete it in 2021. They have been awarded a scholarship with the South Coast Doctoral Training Partnership, which is a collaboration between the universities of Southampton, Brighton and Portsmouth. The aim of the collaboration is to deliver the latest developments in training in research methods and skills to produce highly qualified and rounded social scientists equipped to meet contemporary economic and social challenges. So you're both studying for a social sciences PhD, but from what I can gather, I don't think either of you set out to do a PhD or even knew what it was going to be an option. So can we start from the beginning and find out how you got here? Tell us from the start, you both studied an undergraduate degree here, Danielle? Yeah, um, I studied combined modern languages in French and Spanish. Originally, I think I decided to study languages as that was what I enjoyed studying and I had an aptitude for it. Uh, I was born and raised in Portsmouth, so originally I wanted to try and experience living somewhere else. Um, but I actually didn't get the A-level grades I needed for my chosen universities. So despite wanting to go back to the drawing board and retake my exams, I actually had a tutor tell me that if I didn't go to uni, I'd never get in. Um, right. And I was devastated by the results because I'd always wanted to go to university. But um, I went through clearing and I ended up at the University of Kent hated the course because even though it was still languages the other units were all on literature which didn't interest me okay um so my experience was quite awful um so I took the risk and actually dropped out and then came back and you know went back to the drawing board and reapplied and this time I did choose to apply to Portsmouth um maybe having a better idea at that time of like what I wanted um and I actually met my now supervisor at that open day um and he explained to me that at Portsmouth there was an emphasis on history politics and culture with the language degree so I picked Portsmouth and never looked back oh I'm glad that you never looked back and it sounds like it's done wonders your undergraduate now what led you to do that course because it sounds like com- quite a complicated one the um the undergrad yeah um it's hard to say really I think it was at a like I say at A levels that I did a bit of literature and I just knew it wasn't wasn't my cup of tea um and I think I've always been interested in the history and the politics and I just gravitated towards it you know but it's not um I think it's one of those things where it probably looks worse than it is or it looks harder than it is but if you've got a passion for it and you're interested in it then I think you'll thrive doing something that you're interested in so yeah that's it finding your passion isn't it Mm. and putting that into study then again you'll enjoy it yeah so and Serena what about you can you tell us a bit about your background what did you study in undergraduate well I moved here in 2012 from Romania where I undertook the rest of my first studies um, and then um, I came here with only one option in Newcastle and that was University of Portsmouth uh, which was uh, languages and European studies. Wow. Yeah and then I've done that for four years. Did you, Was that with a placement year? Is that why your undergraduate was four years? Yes, yes because I was studying French I had the option to do a sandwich or placement or year abroad year whatever everyone calls it 
and um, I went in my uh, placement year first semester in France at, uh, at the University of Strasbourg and the second semester in Africa in Senegal for uh, an NGO placement. Okay. And Danielle, did you do a placement year during your undergraduate degree too? Yeah, I did. I went, um, I studied, um, I went to the university, uh, I went to universities in Lyon and Salamanca. So I did a semester in each, so like four or five months. So both of you got sort of outside experience as well as in the in the classroom. Yeah, I think it was crucial as well, um, not just for the language experience, but the exposure to the culture, kind of getting a bit of life and world experience. Um, and I think for me, that was... The, almost the hardest part of the degree was I felt so outside my comfort zone um, and it's one of those things that I was actually quite terrified of doing um, but I came out the other side and <laughs> I think I keep you know, taking these risks and coming out the other side not unscathed but you know kind of with more qualifications and more well-rounded and having achieved something I guess our personal achievement. These podcasts are definitely showing that taking risks can lead to great things. Now, you stayed in Portsmouth. That was where you were born and bred. Yeah. Um, but Serena, you moved here in 2012 from Romania. What made you want to come to Portsmouth to study? Well, it was firstly because the university was one of the best in terms of European studies. Um, and they were really good at languages as well. And also because it was a sea city. I've, I've always liked the idea of living by, by, by the sea. And because okay. in Romania I wasn't that close to it. I was just, And I also it was the colour that the university had purple in it. I always <laughs> laughed. I know it's crazy. But the circles, the perfection of it and the purple. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to go for that. <laughs> and also that the, the costs. Because with my grades I could have gotten in any university I wanted comparing to what I got b- b- back in Romania, but it's just cheaper. It was cheaper for, for, for me to, to, to live here. The purple paid off then. <laughs> yes, definitely. What were your plans after university? So you studied mm. your undergraduate. What did you think was going to happen after that? Well, I came with the idea thinking that I'm going to be a translator at the European Union. Right. But then here I am now not being a translator at the European Union. And I don't think I'll ever want to do that again. But yeah, that that, that was my, my initial plan. But then when I moved here and then during my first and second year, the units that I took kind of opened up my vision in terms of the world and conflict and what's going on. And then taking the placement, not only in France, but in Senegal, kind of showed me that translation is not something that I would do. And I'm more interested in something else, which is probably researching or working in a conflict area. Doing something to help others in a way. Yes. Yeah. 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 And Danielle, what about you? What was your vision when you first started your degree? Thought, I'm going to go into this. Um, well, I think if the experience that I had with not getting into uni, going to uni, not liking it and dropping out, if that whole experience taught me anything, it was that life doesn't always go to plan. And I felt like during my A-levels, I felt like I had life sussed out. And then it just kind of the whole dream crumbled before my eyes. So I just stopped kind of taking things for granted and thinking I knew how things were going to pan out um so yeah I think when I started out um and I think as well because I dropped out that was a huge risk financially for me because with things like student finance England if you have a fail year you get one fail year like in terms of financial support so that first three months I had at Kent was my fail year I couldn't afford to fail otherwise it was going to start coming out of my own pocket which I couldn't afford so you know I was just, yeah, taking it 12 months at a time, putting my all into it. And then when it got to final year, I still kind of wasn't sure what was next for me. Um, I'd applied for a few grad jobs and that I wasn't quite successful with that. But 
I felt like in final year I came into my own. I felt actually quite in control of what I was kind of putting together. Like the I, Everything was just coming together quite nicely. And I put okay. so much energy, focus and drive into that final year that I got great results. And I kind of realised I'm good at this and I know what I'm doing and I love it. And so I applied for a master's bursary with the university just as an option. But then ultimately, when I got awarded that, I decided to go for it. So you both ended up taking a PhD after graduating. Did you do this straight after um, graduating from your first degree? Well, we, um, I think Serena's got a similar situation to me where actually I did the master's that I just mentioned. Um, and then I applied for the PhD after that, which had another master's as a prerequisite. So, uh, yeah, there was a bit, there was a year for me between my master's but I was applying for the second one and kind of the PhD it was like a package deal (laughs) (laughs) so much work but so rewarding yeah Yeah. and Serena what was your story well um after graduation in 2016 um after a couple of days I went to my supervisor actually our supervisor Chris Cameron Tony Chafer and I told him I don't know what to do with my life because I don't feel that I'm ready to go into the corporate world. So, um, yeah, and then he, he, he suggested, why don't you do a master's? Because at the end of the day, even if you don't like it and you don't want to stay in academia, there won't be anyone there who can take away your degree. And also he said, you know, life happens later. You'll, you might want to have family or kids or anything. Yeah. So just do it now. And then this is what, what I've done. I've, um, I've applied for student finance England because it was the first year they were funding the master's, the postgrad loan. Really lucky because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to, to, to afford it. And I've applied for it. I got it, started the master's straight ahead in international relations. And then next year um, I've, um, I've made my, my application for the one plus three uh, scholarship, which is the master's in social research methods and the PhD now. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really have any sort of clear idea like you know I finished the undergrad and then did the masters but even then when I got to the end of the masters I still didn't have a clear idea of what was next for me but fortunately I had a part-time job that I'd gotten when I got when I came back after the year abroad I got myself a part-time job for that final year so I still had that and because I'm a local girl it meant I didn't have to make any sort of rash um, decision or urgent decisions that would affect my livelihood because I could move back home with my parents keep my job and the university was still there um but yeah similar to Serena I think you know I kind of maybe took you know a couple of weeks and then went back in for a meeting with my supervisor and I was just interested you know what when I want to apply for a PhD what what does that entail um I didn't think it was something I would do immediately because my cousin had done a PhD and I think she did that in her early to mid 30s so I thought I'd I could go out into the world of work and get some more experience but I went into that meeting with my supervisor with five potential ideas so Maybe I was naive to the fact that that was the the route I was going to head in because when I came out of that meeting with my tutor, I was applying for a PhD. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) But it just, it felt like an option and a way forward. And I think that's how it's gone, you know, ever since I dropped out of Kent. You know, I've got my options and I've just made a decision and I've, I've kind of like a risk, but, you know, making a decision and sticking to it and just figuring things out as I go along. With the advice, like you say, of your supervisors, for example, take advantage of those that you do have whilst at university, I suppose. Yes, definitely. Well, it depends on who you have, of course, because not all people are the same. But I would say that what, one of the reasons for staying here after it was the, pe- the research 
um, options and the people that are here because they're really passionate about well uh, about the, the, the subject that, that I'm interested in, and because they helped us getting the um, the placements that we had. It means that we already had an established network of people and, and actually a community of friends because they are, they are now, that's, that's how I see them. They, we're not a staff and a student anymore. Yeah. We're, we're just more than that. We're friends. With a common so, goal almost. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, I, yeah. Com- I completely agree. Like it's like Serena pointing that out. It's if, if I didn't have that good relationship with my supervisor, if I didn't have good relationships with the staff, and the people in the department and like the librarian if i didn't have that i it's hard to say whether or not i would have continued whether or not i might have actually not liked union wanted to really pursue something else but it just it felt like i don't see the perfect storm or the right mix of ingredients like you know you feel i felt like i had the right team there around me for me to make that decision so that is a big big factor as well and um, as Serena just said, the, the it was also the research options that you're given. Is that that's what sort of drove you even more to do your PhD? Can you tell me a bit about both of your research questions and why you chose to do that in particular? Well, I'm well. We're both first year PhD at the moment, um, so I've spent the the most of the last kind of six months trying to better define the project. And most people know with like their final year dissertations and things like that it's not it doesn't come ready made you know projects they all they're always developing and evolving throughout um right now like i can say that i'm studying how france has legitimized its intervention in the malian crisis in 2013 but even so the project has evolved quite substantially since that meeting with my supervisor like over two years ago um i see my specialty kind of area of knowledge being a culmination of the knowledge that I've acquired from the undergrad degree and then the master's and then I've learned even more on the master's that was the part of the one plus three um scholarship that we got with the South Coast Doctoral Training Partnership um but the idea itself that I went into that meeting with my supervisor like the idea was inspired by like the knowledge that I'd gained having spent six weeks in Senegal on placement with the BBC and then observing the terror attacks that happened in France in 2015 after I saw those I had quite a lot of questions in mind and with you know having done French and like history and culture and politics and then um, a master's in international relations and European studies so there was a security element to that as well it was just you know just everything kind of coming together and me starting to ask questions about the world and that's how the project kind of was born. Now does your sort of area of interest crossover with yours, Serena? Just the area <laughs> and, and the subject security. But mine comes from the fact that, as I said earlier, during my third year, I went in Senegal, in West Africa for five yes. months. Um, and I had an internship there with um, an organisation that works in conflict prevention, West African Network for Peace Building. And getting that hands-on experience and writing policy recommendations and seeing that after nothing is done kind of prompted me to think that I would have more impact if I would do research rather than work straight ahead. So came back, wanted to do a project on conflict prevention, but that wasn't successful. So after that, the university had an open call with uh, the subject that's looking at a UK and US military intervention in West Africa. 
that was the general topic. And now this year, after much reading, hundreds and hundreds of journal articles and books. Um, nights and, and in the library. <laughs> well, days, nights, weeks, yes, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, I've decided that it would be good uh, and novel to focus um, again on the UK and US intervention, but specifically remoting it, uh, specifically looking at their intervention in uh, West Africa um, on Boko Haram, probably you've heard about the terrorist group, um, and their approach, which is um, framed in a type of remote warfare, where, of course, you've got an, an, an insurgency there, but they don't do enough, unfortunately. And I'm looking at the issues around that, that intervention. So where, like, where there's, like, it's not quite crossover, I guess. I think it can sound like there's a lot, because we're both looking at West Africa, and that's where... Um, there's a lot of um, involvement and engagement from the UK, the US and the France, and they are often working together. So that's where it can sound like there's crossover between our projects. But my project is looking at how, like I said, how France has legitimised its intervention in Mali. And I think when people look at these interventions, and you'll see it on the news, they're talking um, about the legitimacy. And that usually like that's usually talking about the UN and whether there's been an, an official mandate whereas I kind of have a hunch that the way that maybe states legitimize um their interventions it's that's that's one level but then you're, you've also got how do they justify it at home to their own governments how do they justify it or legitimize it to the local governments you know or the local bodies like whose authority matters in these different places um, and I think, yeah, it's just, it's an evolution of knowledge and, you know, as life moves on, just, just acquiring all this, acquiring all this information and asking questions. And like I said, following the 2015 terror attacks, I was interested in how France was responding to what had happened both at home and, um, and away from home, like, um, specifically in Africa, um, and I was wondering if they were kind of what the US does with the Middle East. Is that kind of a similar activity that they're engaging in? And along the way, it's turned into this project. Constantly developing, I'm yeah. sure. As, as with things being so volatile, it's always something to keep keep in mind. But so it was just a coincidence that you both had a placement in Senegal. No, that was our supervisor. Yeah, we have the supervisor in common and he's had ties with Senegal and I think the region for about Since 25 80s, years yeah. or something. Wow, okay. Um, he's got great ties. And I think this was back when I was doing my master's and like I say, kind of with, that was following Charlie Hebdo actually. I was doing my master's 2015-16, so Charlie Hebdo had happened in the January and I didn't like how it was being portrayed on the news. I felt that... Um, the British public were more intelligent than just being constantly told how many people were died and I felt people needed to know what this meant on a more deeper um, more detailed level um, so I mentioned to him you know oh, I'd quite like to get into broadcast journalism and he had like I said he had ties at the BBC so out I went for six weeks to work in Dakar <laughs> with the BBC there and then Serena did a placement um, the year after me, I think. Yes, yeah, we were at the BBC, but before my main my main placement was the um, 
was the um, geo one but that was just very random i just woke up one day because the, 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 we, we kept having those emails saying please choose your placement here and i was like i don't know if i want to do that i was really afraid but then i woke up and i was like i went to to tony looking on google who's uh, who's responsible and i said i want to go to senegal and he was like okay I'm going there tomorrow to secure placement, so you're really lucky because you just came at the right time. And I was like, brilliant. Wow. <laughs> and then just it happened. To be honest, I was supposed to go for the entire year, but it was the year when Ebola crisis happened. And because Senegal had, had only one case, to be honest, I didn't care. I would still have went. Um, <laughs> of course, you know how risk assessment and insurance works. And then um, that, that's why I, I went to Strasbourg in France. Otherwise, I would have went for the entire year. <laughs> Oh, wow. It sounds like such an interesting story. And it- yeah, I mean, I think when I um, when I did my placement, I ended up at, um, I think it was a um, historical trial. There was um, a, di- a former dictator from Chad who was, um, I think he got sentenced to life, I think, uh, for human rights abuses. And I was in the courtroom when he got his sentence. And it yeah, it's this, um, his name was Hisen Abre, and I was just kind of in this courtroom when the sentence got handed down, and um, there were supporters of him there, and there were people whose family had been, I think, tortured and stuff. And is it like, is it u- ulating or something? You know, when they make the ah, like start doing that in the courtroom, and I managed to get that recorded on my phone, and they used it in the um, report that went out that night about the trial. I got to go to Dakar Fashion Week. Um, it was a really, really good experience. So Loved the opportunities it. that have arisen are just, you couldn't write them really. It's- no. I mean, yeah, I think you say like 10 years ago when, was it 10 years? Yes, I mean, eight, nine years ago when I was dropping out of uni, I wouldn't have pictured that this is where I'd be right now. So it's one of those things, if you do take risks, sensible, educated risks, then yeah. it will pay off. You don't know what's going to happen. But, but this is re- re- research, the o- opportunities that we get to meet important people. Even yesterday, we went to, to a, new, a research event at Chatham House and you meet with military people, ambassadors, government officials, and you wouldn't think that ever, every day. But then this is research and this is what, what, what happens. So. Yeah, I couldn't believe I was sat in that room yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Just like yeah. I was literally sat next to someone from the Ministry of Defence and then somebody who was like from the foreign office mm. and then there was an ambassador at the table and I'm just like sorry if I walked into the wrong room <laughs> yeah <laughs> should I be I, here <laughs> yeah what, what am I doing here um so yeah it was yeah it was a big deal yesterday I think for us that we mm. were there your lives sound so exciting and as an undergraduate myself I feel like I'm in your shoes I couldn't imagine myself doing a PhD tell me what a, a typical day as a PhD student is Hmm. Well, I usually get to the office because we have our postgrad desks that that we can uh, we we can use around half nine ten, and then I try to read for half an hour, get a five minute break, half an hour because I can't concentrate for more than that, um, and then lunch, and then try to answer to emails because there's always a lot of emails coming. You know, I never thought before starting a PhD that admin work is there <laughs> and you actually need to do at least one hour of admin work where you try to send the emails. Um, because I teach from time to time undergrad students here, um, I have to deal with that. For example, this week I've got marking to do. 
and I'm learning that because it's my first time as well. So is, is that it, in your subject you're teaching? Um, yes, it is international relations. It's um, it's stuff that I've done before, and it's um, the the documents that we have this year are related to terrorism. So and um, the Iraq War. So it, it, it's something that I already know about. But there's there's subjects that I don't know, and I have to learn myself again, and then try to navigate through for them with uh, with students. And then more reading, writing, it, it depends. The PhD life and work is not stable. It's, you, you don't have the same day every day. There's no timetable. No, well, you need a timetable because that's the thing. You need to be really good at managing yourself and motivating yourself to get out of bed and go and work. Of course, we have our supervisors who meet us every week, every month, um, but you still need to, to, to be really good at managing yourself so you 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 get everything done because you, you can easily get to that procrastination moment when you're like oh, I don't really want to do it but then you, you go, you're back to do it because yeah. you remember that it's really important <laughs> yeah I think um, definitely structure is an important thing but it's um, if you, I, I would say if you're a control freak you might need to relinquish that slightly because no two days are the same with the PhD like Serena said it's um yeah there's there's when you when you start day one there's nothing on your timetable except your major review at the end of the first year which is the year that we're in but this is what I kind of love about doing a PhD I've always felt like so when I when I had my part-time job I almost didn't like being told what to do if you know what I mean um and it's not I have a healthy respect for authority but I've always kind of sensed that I needed a job that allowed me some element of freedom and flexibility or at least I have like I have some sort of stake in what I'm doing um but yeah like this week for example we're at Chatham House and then today we're here with you and then tomorrow I'm going to Brighton for a conference on postgraduate um mental health and well-being so that's that's my week but that's not an average week but then no week is an average week because um personally I don't tend to really like using the hot desk in space that we've got I prefer to work from home but you know it can always look on the outside like the grass is greener like oh I get to choose my own hours and I get to work from home and it's it's so much harder than that because you know it is managing everything and finding a balance so it's like yeah okay I've got all this stuff going on this week but I've got to do data collection for my project at the moment so it is and then emails and admin. So, yeah. you know, it's, I, I think I've just, anything I've learned is don't kind of get too far ahead of yourself. Um, you can generally plan things in, but I try to just look at the week ahead of me, work around meetings and getting my work done. And that's always the top priority is getting that work done as well. You've both mentioned that you're almost you're like your own boss sort of thing no one's telling you to be anywhere it's down to you to make it now can you tell me Serena what are the challenges that you'd say you've faced studying a PhD hmm time management because when doing a PhD it's on your mind it's not like you 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 could go to work you work on a project you close the door and you go home and sometimes you've got, I've got moments, unfortunately, and it's unhealthy sometimes. Yeah. Uh, you wake up at 11, oh, I've got this really great idea, and you just get your phone and you start writing because, yeah, th- this is one one of the issues. Second, you can get lonely if you work from home. I've uh, I worked from home last year. 
I don't do anymore because I got a cat and he bothers me. <laughs> he just insists to sit on my laptop every day. So I decided Back that it's desks. better for, for me for eight hours or how, how long I, I, I sit in the, into the postgrad office. It's better to be there. Plus, it's good to have that community feel anyway. Um, otherwise, and uh, I don't know, probably the perception that people have on you because they yeah. still see you as a student. And it's nice to be a student because you still get the student discount. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but they still see you as that immature with no proper real job. No priorities. Whereas, yes, yeah. Uh, well, I do have a lot of priorities and they know that. Uh, but it's just that 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 image that they they have of you, and you have to explain that what you do is real work. And although you don't have fixed office hours, you still have to hand in an eighty thousand words paper at the end of three years, and publish, and teach, and engage, and yeah, spinning yeah. plates. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think yeah. I've I've had um, before. I've had um, yeah. People don't like to look at what's going on behind the scenes, and I've had like when I did my first masters, you know. I I was working so hard and then I got my distinction and everyone's like how did you get that like you you you've got all the time in the world like you know cuz um you know like Serena said um it's so flexible we don't have that infrastructure we don't have a timetable you have got to implement that yourself but people don't see you doing that they don't see the cogs turning in your head when you're trying to work out how you're going to get through the week and what's going to happen when so when you know you do put the work in that's kind of happening quietly behind closed doors and yeah. people don't really get to see that so when you do come you know you've produced this piece of work and you get a good mark for it or you do well I have had people like kind of act shocked and surprised because they've seen maybe the social side of me but they've not seen what goes on when I'm studying at home and I'm getting my job done basically yeah people um if they see you on one surface as a PhD student, they don't know what else you have going on. But if they don't understand the PhD, then again, it's the opposite. Yeah, and I think we are caught between being undergrads, as in like, we're, obviously we're not undergrads, but we're like Serena said, we're still students in a sense, but we are caught between this perception of students, but being working professionals. Yeah. So, you you know, when you say to someone, I'm a PhD student or I'm doing a PhD, you don't know what reaction you're going to get because some people can, um, can be like, oh, you know, you're still skiving off, the, like skiving off the government or, you know, that sort of thing. Or you can get people who are like, wow, that's so great. What are you doing? And people who will really engage with that side of what you're doing and want to know. And that's great. That those are really good conversations to have with people. As our listeners will be thinking us yes. hearing <laughs> you say that. Serena mentioned that she worked at home for a little bit um, as part of a degree and found it got can be quite lonely. Yeah. And but you said you don't enjoy the hot dusking environment. Do you find lone working makes you thrive? Um I feel like I actually agree with Serena that it can be quite lonely and it is difficult from working from home, like particularly like I live in shared housing. So my desk is in my room and that can affect my sleep and sleep's super important in terms of, you know, having a routine and that that important self-imposed timetable. The reason I do it is because of the comfort of being able to like, you know, go just not, I don't have to leave my stuff somewhere. I can, it's my home and I'm comfortable there. Um, and I am a big advocate of rest and just like listening to your body. It's something I've learned across the last like eight, nine years is just if it's not there, don't force it. So I can um, 
I can get up in the morning, I can kind of have my, I can sit at my desk at like 7am and get to work straight away and then like go and make breakfast and then come back and keep going and then at 10 o'clock I might you know start to get a little budding headache so I'll go and play the sims or something for like half an hour and then get back into the reading so I can chop and change and I don't have I feel like I have less restrictions at home based on there's nobody really around who I might be disturbing or who might want to use the space that I'm in if I'm doing like if I am playing the sims or something um making a balance yeah balance yeah balance is important so you know it's I, f- I feel like if I was at the hot desking space the the way that I work wouldn't work so well for me but I do miss that community aspect of working at home but then the library is kind of undergraduate central it can be quite disruptive there so I feel like working at home is the best option for me but it's not necessarily the best option or the best way for me to work if that makes sense everyone works differently at the end of the day so nothing fits one person but in 2021 when you finish your research what is next (laughs) Serena can you tell me about what your plans are well at the moment I'm thinking because I started teaching I kind of got to see this part of the industry and the world on the other side of the desk (laughs) and um, I'm planning maybe to do half teaching half consultancy because in that way I can still do a bit of research but also have a real job, if that, that's what, 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 what people call it. All right, okay. And then um, probably allow me to travel enough because I always love travelling, hence I moved here and in a ton of other places around the world. <laughs> um, but yeah, probably half and half. So your love of research is going to continue, hopefully. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> if if there's any anything happening, or probably a stroke, or I forget to to, to speak English or ro- ro- Romanian Touch or French, that doesn't happen. Yeah, or, or French. In case that doesn't happen, I'll I should probably still be here. Yeah. And you, Danielle, what's what's up next? Um, I think I'm just going to continue on as I have done since. Like I said, that kind of I think that was maybe the catalyst moment for me was dropping out of uni and just learning not to take things for granted, not to anticipate too much what's going to happen next. I'm just taking it twelve months at a time. So um, you don't want me to speak too soon and, and <laughs> well, make something. Well, that being said, though, I am incredibly optimistic and eager to know where I'll end up. You know, if they if in the next two and a half years they invent time travel and someone can tell me where I'm going to move on to if they said you know you you stayed within academia you know you're doing a postdoc um you're teaching or if somebody said that I'm working for a think tank or an NGO I'd be pretty happy with that but you know I think with um further study I don't think I've limited my options I think if anything I've got more options and more possibilities available to me and that's really exciting so I don't even have to kind of have a it feels like I don't have to have that plan in place it feels like it doesn't matter because I'm going to focus on my PhD for the next two and a half years and when I get to the end there will be an option there for me and I'll do what I've done before and that's make the decision that's best for me at that time and yeah I'm really excited about that. So would you recommend studying at Portsmouth? Without a doubt. Three words. Yeah, I think if anything that we've said in, in this like conversation like kind of resonates with people, it's that, you know, we have we found a home here and even though I'm already from Portsmouth, you know, I did try going elsewhere and I came back home again and you know, I was really worried it was gonna just happen again. 
and you know I didn't even I had no idea I was going to end up here and that is down to finding that thing that I'm passionate about that I want to pursue but also having a supportive supervisor somebody who's invested in you um and you know the people in the department who are invested in you I think that can be extremely underestimated but just yeah I think Portsmouth just has made such a a big difference in both of our lives and I think you know it'd be great to encourage people to come here and have the same experience and would you say exactly the same Serena it's well for mine is different because of course I have to move to another country to to, to study um but yeah the the university counts a lot because they train you enough to get skills so even if i decide to move away from portsmouth after in 2021 i still know that i received enough training and experience for a job but i don't know if i'll be able to do that because as i said our supervisor our friends i've been lucky enough to find my partner here and we were together, so yeah, yeah. But the university was really, really good in, in in doing it. And also, I convinced my sister to move here, to, to move here. So she's studying photography. She's in her first year now, just finishing it. Wow! So if I made her, who's a li- little stubborn person, to come here <laughs> and leave with me, then I think anyone can do it. <laughs> I bet your family back in Romania are like my mum is here. My oh, my mum's here. She, she she's in Salisbury. Yeah, yeah. She moved here into 2014 as well. So I think it is the Portsmouth bag. Yeah, <laughs> it's doing right for you guys, definitely. Yes. It's the yeah. purple and the sea. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. It's, yeah. it's not just sea degrees. It's being by the beach <laughs> and also having the purple in the logo. I yeah. love that. Well, thank you so much for telling me all about your journeys and inspiring me to consider a PhD because it it is something that can be really daunting for mm-hmm. people. But as we've established, you sort of just got to take. 12 months at a time. Thank you to our two guests today for sharing their stories and inspiration with us. I hope this has given you the encouragement to further your studies and demonstrated that you don't have to come from a certain background or education system to study for a PhD. If this is a consideration for you and you'd like some information about further study at the University of Portsmouth, please visit the university webpage www.port.ac.uk forward slash postgraduate. If you like the University of Portsmouth alumni Facebook page, you'll get a reminder of when these are coming up. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.